Hello, you gorgeous people. Welcome to the Impact Code, where we take deep dives into the stories and journeys of impact in the lives of our guests. I'm so excited for today's episode. Today's guest is Rich Hincappy. If you are not familiar with Rich, you will be after this episode. Let me tell you a little about Rich before we get started so that you have some idea of who he is and some of the amazing things that he has accomplished. Rich founded a company called Hencappy Sportswear in 2002, and he built it from the ground up. As the apparel business grew and became successful, Rich branched into complementary high-end cycling experience businesses, including gourmet food, upscale lodging, guided rides, and a weekend race series. This race series, the Grand Fondo Hincapi Series, now today includes five races that span the East Coast all the way to the West Coast. The same year that Rich started the Grand Fondo Hincapi Series, he and his brother George also began their own development racing team, which now has grown to a continental team with numerous titles and a renowned reputation. In 2017, Rich and George began the Hencappy Cycling Society with the goal of encouraging people to get into cycling. Rich is someone who is the embodiment of grit, hard work, and thinking outside the box. I'm so honored to have had this conversation with Rich, and I just, I'm telling you what, I can't wait to see what the Hencappy brand will do next. One last thing before we dive into today's episode, and I know you are ready for that, is that I want to mention who is bringing you today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you completely free by Tower Community Bank. I work for Tower. If you've listened to the podcast before, you've heard me talk a little bit about Tower and how big of a fan I am of the way that we do things here, really looking to revolutionize what it means to be a community bank. And I'm telling you what, if you need a checking account, you need a savings account, you are looking to maybe switch banks, switch from your credit union, check us out at towercommunitybank.com. We've got some really cool things going on. And one of the things that is really unique that Tower offers is that if you do want to open up a new account, checking, savings, whatever type of account you want to open up, you can do that without even coming into the branch, but still be face-to-face with a banker, someone who can answer questions, who can reassure you, who can help ensure that everything is set up exactly the way that you want it to, and it only takes a few minutes. And you can do that at virtual.towercommunitybank.com. So you can check out everything about Tower at towercommunitybank.com or if you're saying hey i need a new bank account you've come to the right place check out virtual.towercommunitybank.com you could place a call there you just enter a little bit of personal information place a video call and within a few minutes our team will gather everything that they need to have your account opened and you can do that without even leaving the comfort of your desk chair or your couch so check out tower community bank thank you to them for providing everything to make this podcast possible and now I know you're ready. So without further ado, the one and only Rich Hencappy. Hello, Rich, and thank you for being on the show. I want to start by taking time to dive in and, and start talking about uh, the impact that you want to have. But before we do that, I'd love to just take a minute and go all the way back to the beginning of your entry into the cycling community. What was that like? How did you get started? And, and how did that transform towards the beginning of your journey? 
Yeah. So cycling's always been a big part of my life and my family's life. My, my dad grew up racing and riding bikes in Columbia, South America. And as a very young age, I started riding along with my brother. So it's even before we started riding, I, you know, my earliest memories are going to bike races and watching. So it's always been an integral part of our lives. And, and so we, you know, I, I competed some, my brother obviously made a big career out of it, but kind of in the middle of that, um, you know, I was going to college and, and a, a local uh, cycling promoter that was putting on a big bike race here in town was going to retire and they wanted somebody to kind of take over the reins. And, and back then I was, I was going to school. Um, actually, I just graduated school at UNC Charlotte. I moved to Greenville to, to basically race my bike full time. Mm-hmm. And so the local club figured I had a lot of time on my hands because I was just riding and they asked me if I wanted to produce continue producing this bike race, which was called the Michelin Cycling Classic. And I just said, sure, why not? Not knowing much about it. And, um, you know, I jumped in with both feet and I learned about race promotion and I learned about, you know, sponsorship and community relations and, you know, having relationships with the mayor or the city manager or some of the local businesses. And, and from a very, very early start, my my responsibility was building relationships with the community, right? Mm. But, we wanted to promote the cycling event. We wanted to promote health and wellness. This is back well before health and wellness was like the thing. Yeah, it's trendy um, now. And we wanted to, it's trendy now. And we wanted to educate, you know, the local merchants and the local people on what high-end bike racing was. Um, and so it was really at a very early start, it was just building these relationships, literally going from, you know, store to store and trying to, explain to people that yes the road is going to be closed in front of your restaurant <laughs> but we're also going to bring in 700 people from all over the country and you know while it might not work for you the day of the event eventually that's how community grows right and if you look right. at greenville now and you look at the locations where i had this bike race downtown back then you, you wouldn't even walk there at night it's so mm-hmm. dangerous and now it's you know prime real estate and, and i'm not saying it's because of cycling or because of me that the community has grown, but these little elements that, you know, you're trying to put the, the best light on where you live and showcase where you live to other people. Yeah. has a small part of, of the growth, you know? Absolutely. Um, so when, when you graduated from business school, did you know that you wanted to be in cycling? Was this already sort of a, a vision that you wanted to do something in that world? And in this opportunity with Michelin just came along and, it felt like the right fit or was this something that you, you kind of just felt like, well, you know, this is a thing that I do it's here and I'm going to do it. Yeah. It was just, it was just a, a thing to kind of keep connected with the local community cycling community. I never really thought it would be something I would continue to do. I, I knew it'd be something I would learn from, um, you know, my, my vision and what I wanted and what I was doing full time was, being a bike racer and and yeah. when i graduated school even though i had a degree where a lot of the pro cyclists don't don't have degrees i you know i thought maybe someday i would make it you know mm-hmm. unfortunately i didn't with that with respect to being a professional cyclist i raced full-time for two or three years and i got one accident and then ended up getting a job at a computer company selling computers and sales which also helped develop you know my sort of development and, and developing relationships and talking to people um, and while, while I still had a full-time job, I, I still always kept closely connected with the business of cycling because I always put on sure. this bike race while I was, while I had this job. And so 
I never really thought about growing um, into more bike races. You know, mm-hmm. back then I was just, you know, working full time, you know, newly married, maybe a young family back then. And then little by little, I started thinking, well, maybe, maybe I can make this work. Um, I remember the way the clothing company started, you know, most people start mm-hmm. a company and they have a business plan and they have, you know, five and 10 year projection. Yeah. Um, you know, when I'm the staff pass, I'm here to tell you that I did not have that. Right? <laughs> it, was, it was just an idea that, that came up and, and I'll tell you what the idea was in 2001. Um, the Michelin classic used to be like uh, October 15th, mid October. Mm-hmm. And, um, 2001, you know, September 11th, um, came about, we had an Italian team that was going to come race the Michelin Cycling Classic in October. It was a, a team of about six riders and all of, all of them, um, did not come except for one guy. His name was Robbie. Mm-hmm. And, and so back then I had a small cycling team. It was just a group of friends that we would just kind of put a team together, uh, and just go race local races. And, Robbie, the Italian, who barely spoke English, came to the Michelin Classic. He stayed at a friend's house. And mm. he said, hey, you have a team. You know, do you, do you, uh, where do you make the clothing? I said, well, I'll make the clothing here. But he's like, well, I have a, I have a contact that owns a factory in Italy, and I'm a designer. Mm. You know, why don't, we, why don't I help design the kit for your team? I said, well, sure. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah. And so we sent them all the logos and sent them all the stuff. And, you know, I outfitted the team with, with, with our kit. Uh, and I'll never forget he called me um, and he said, hey, um, this this factory that builds, makes clothing, they only produce clothing for other brands. Do you want to put a logo on there? And I was like, I'm, I mean, I don't, I don't really have a company. I don't really know. And he said, well, why don't we just put Hink Happy on there and I'll design a logo for you. I said, wow. sure, that sounds good. Yeah. Not really thinking that this was going to be something. Um, and so he did that. We got the kit probably in March or so, this is 2002. Um, and then I got a phone call from a friend of mine that was a director of a big bike ride that still goes on today. He's since passed away. His name is Don Bryan. Hmm. And he said, it was, it's called the assault on Mount Mitchell. And he said, Hey, I saw one of your guys. Cause I had a guy that lived sort of close to the, the place where he put the event on. But mm-hmm. I saw one of you guys and, and he had your team kit on it. And it said, think happy on it. So you, you make clothing. And I said, no, I just made it for the team. It was a fun thing for your friends. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm looking for 800 jerseys for this assault on Mount Mitchell. Do you think you can produce them for me? And I was like, well, let me check. So then I called the factory in Italy and my friend Robbie, and, 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 you know, that's how we started. Just kind of jumped into it. And from there, you know, when you have 800 people wearing a jersey with the logo on it, and obviously I was fortunate enough because stepping back, there's a lot of pro athletes that, start companies, whether it's a cyclist mm-hmm. plus a bike company, whether it's a basketball player that has a shoe deal, whether whoever it may be, there's a lot of there's a lot of pro athletes that start companies. Generally they start them when when the athlete is not in play, right? They retire mm-hmm. and start the company. I think we were fortunate enough to where, you know, if George had retired and we started Team Happy to, to sort of develop the, the basis of a brand, no matter what it is, it's going to take five years, if not 10, for it to be a healthy brand. Right. I was fortunate enough to start the brand while the athlete was still in play. I mean, yeah. George is racing the biggest bike races in the world, the Tour de France. His name's on TV. He was super famous American. People loved him. And mm-hmm. at the same time, I'm developing this Pink Happy brand. Well, I was basically free marketing for the first, you know, five or 10 years. 
Um, and so I, I didn't back then. I didn't realize fully realize the power of that. But yeah. that you know, when I got that first order from Matt Mitchell, and then people, eight hundred people, are wearing the kit with Pink Happy Name on it, and they're watching the Tour de France with George winning the stage. Then people start asking questions, and then so that summer. I came up with a plan. I was like, well, I guess I'm going to try to do this. I was still working full-time at the computer company. So, yeah. I, you know, I would come home and Robbie had moved here from Italy and he, he helped me with the first catalog. And um, I bought the USA Cycling mailing list. So I sent every club, um, which was like 2,000, um, every club a catalog and a letter you know, stating that we started this brand and the history of George. And I just mailed out 2,000. I had a printer. I had a big industrial printer at home that I had one at work because I worked at a computer company and we would go, we would stuff these envelopes after work and took them to the post office and mail them out. And that was in about, that was about August. So then September, the phone starts ringing and, you know, I would come home. I had a, my daughter was probably a year old. So I would come home from work at like 6.30, eat dinner, and then go upstairs and work till like midnight. But the problem wow. is you, you can't return phone calls at 11 o'clock at night, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of the early beginnings of the cell phone. So I had a cell phone and at lunchtime at, you know, where I worked, I would call these people back and then hmm. they would call me back and I couldn't call them the next day. So it got so busy by the time um, November or December came with these orders and phone calls. And so I, I, had, I made a, a decision uh, January of 2003 to quit my job. And, and do this full time. And it was, you know, it was a big leap of faith with yeah. young family, you know, house. I had a really good job to kind of jump into the unknown and, and we did it. Um, wow. And here we are. Yeah. Still here. Yeah. So yeah. I want, I want to unpack a little bit of this a little further. So that first order, you have 800 that you're trying to produce mm-hmm. and ship. And what was that like? Was that, stressful at that time trying to figure out all the ins and outs was it fairly seamless because of the the outsourcing with no, the factory not. i'll never forget that they showed up at my house the registration <laughs> started at on friday at like two o'clock mm-hmm. in spartanburg i live in greenville it's about 35 miles away yep and the shipment got to my house at six o'clock on friday so i had to drive them out there i didn't think they'd make them i didn't know anything about custom clearance you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. certificates of origin. I didn't know any of that. I just said, ship it to my house. I had no idea. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I almost missed that ride, right? Only yeah. By a couple hours. So that, how, how different would it, this look if, if um, there wasn't 800 people wearing the jersey and the first customer was mad and there's 800 people that are mad because yeah. I missed it. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was within hours. And so... Yeah, there was a lot to learn, and, and not only the shipping component, you know, how you send the orders, how you do the art. I mean, this is, you know, it's it's not, it's not like I, I started this company having worked at another company or even right. having knowledge of manufacturing or cycling. And that's why I said the the way I started, you know, business plan, knowledge, and forecasting. I didn't have any of that. I didn't right. have a plan. I didn't have any know how. I just jumped in and figured it out. And um, yeah, and after a few years, we slowly started moving production to South America. That's where my family's from. My, mm-hmm. my, my uncle um, has run factories for his whole life. He was in between jobs. This was 2003, early 2003. I got a call from a, a customer that wanted um, 50 cycling caps, small order. 
mm-hmm. um, and Italy's minimum on cycling caps was 500. Ah. So, you know, you're early in business, you don't want to turn down an order. So I called my uncle and I was like, hey, you know, I started this kind of company and people ordering stuff and I ordered these caps and I can't make them. I don't want to tell the guy down. And he's like, oh, why don't you send me a sample? We'll figure, figure out how to do it. He didn't have any knowledge of the, the sort of the, the <laughs> cycling component of it. So right. we went down there and de- deconstructed the cap and figured out the printing. And it was very, very archaic. It was, you know, uh, our first order in South America. We had to go to, I mean, and this is all true stories. We had to go to maybe five or six different places. We had to go to a place to print out the artwork. We had to go to a place to, to digitize the artwork. We had another, mm-hmm. another place to cut the fabric to buy the, you know, buy the, the brim of the cap. Wow. This. And then the last thing, the last place we went to was was a hot dog stand at a bus station because the lady <laughs> who worked at the hot dog stand also could sew. And ah. my uncle was friends with her. And so we picked up the finished product at the hot dog stand at the bus station. And that was our first order in South America. Now, all of our production is down there. The family-owned factory. And, and uncle still worked there. And my cousins worked there. And, yeah, about 150 employees. Wow. What a, what a growth journey that must have been. And that was over, so you said it, that was in 2003. So this has been over the past sure. almost 20 years now at this point. Almost 20 years. Yeah, the first, and we slowly started with apps because they were easy. And then we, we transitioned into jerseys, which at first were a disaster because we had to outsource every component of that jersey. And yeah. you know, people are late or they printed something wrong. We, we really had no control or handle over our production, which is not the way to go about it. But little by little, we bought sewing machines and printers and um, had, you know, found the space and just continued to grow from, you know, we started with one seamstress to two. Now we probably have, I think, maybe 90. Um, wow. Just little by little, but you just learn day by day. Um, but it is an uncharacteristic um, sort of way to start, you know, start a business. Um, sure. Just, we just kind of figured it out every day and every day you learn, we still learn something new every day for the most part, but um, just kind of roll with the punches. Yeah. And I, I think that's actually something that may be really encouraging for people who are listening to this is that the, the way your journey is a, maybe an unconventional way to get there. You know, you didn't have a business plan. You didn't have outside funding. You didn't have some of these, I don't know if you'd call those advantages, but, I guess the typical way that people start a business, you sort of moonlighted this business and self-funded mm-hmm. it over time. And I think that is something that there's a lot of people in that situation that they, because of student loans or because of they have a family, they they're working a job and they're making an income, but they're maybe not, exactly. they're maybe not doing that thing that they love yet or the thing that they feel right. like is really their, their calling or their purpose. And so I find that, part of your story really encouraging and really fascinating yeah and when you really want to make something work i mean you you, you find a way to do it right and i think i i saw this not having knowledge for example of manufacturing it ended up being sort of an opportunity because the way we make our clothing now is different from most manufacturers in the cycling mm-hmm. industry we use different types of threads and the, the construction is different because we did it because we didn't know any other way right we didn't right. learn from another factory that did it and we just figured it out. I'll never forget the chamois, you know, kind of the, the pad that you put in your shorts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most companies 
after you ride them for a while, this red starts kind of wasting away, and it, you know it, it's a common thing. Mm-hmm. Well, ours have never done that because I'll never forget. I sat down with my uncle. I was like, "Look, this thread needs to be really strong." And he's like, "Oh, okay. Why don't we use shoe shoe thread, shoe nylon thread?" I was mm. like, "Well, isn't that like overkill?" He's like, "I don't know, but it won't break." And to this day, twenty years later, we're still using shoe thread on our chamois, and wow. not one of them has ever fallen out. So my point is, like, we we came up with these things not knowing quote unquote the right way of doing it. We just figured out a way of doing it. And sometimes that that ends up being better. I, you know, it's funny I had this conversation probably in maybe the second or third year that the company was around. Obviously it was still very small. We only had three employees here. Um and and a, a local uh, community business person who was a friend of mine, sort of a mentor. Um there was a, a school, USC, uh, in Columbia, uh, mm-hmm. Columbia, South Carolina, that had an MBA program, and they were doing a project. Uh, um, one of the MBA classes was doing a project, so like seven of the, um, the students came here to sort of kind of interview me and sort of evaluate me on the business and then give me a report back. It was part of that mm-hmm. project. And basically, the report said, that I will never make it because I don't have any budget for for tax or right, knowledge right. of manufacturing and oh, you know wow. all the typical textbook things, right? Yeah, did and that so I got did that discourage you? Like, wow, that's, that's a little discouraging. Yeah, <laughs> that probably motivated me more. But I'll never forget that when they sat down, I'm like, look, you know, you know, based on what we've learned and what we know, um, you know, your chances of ever making it or ever becoming a big brand are slim to none because you know you should have started with. 5, 10, 20 year projections and you should have started with, you know, some funding and you should have had more knowledge of what you're doing. And they were, they were totally correct. They were right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to argue with you. Yes. But um, what do you do at that point? Do you just give up or you just work harder, you know? Yeah. And that's a theme I saw on your website quite a bit. You talk about hard work, grit, determination. And I find it so fascinating, even just hearing you talk right now, Rich, that you're focusing so much like you have these uh, potentially problems, I guess that are coming up and instead of letting those things be obstacles, they actually ended up being some of the things that became your competitive advantage over time. What, what is that in your perspective that like, is that, did you get that from someone? Is that something you learned over time? Is that just who you are as a person, but how do you see these things? And instead of getting discouraged or maybe there was discouragement, but you used it as fuel. Yeah, and I think part part of that is is me racing and also my 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 brother's career. Right, you look at right. how hard these professional athletes really work and mm-hmm. how dedicated they are, mm-hmm. and how much they have to sacrifice. You know, no drinking, no food, going to bed early. You know, training six seven hours a day in the rain. Right, and so you know when when it's only a joke between between friends and you know with my brother because my brother's three years younger than me. And, and, you know, people are like, oh, he's, he's younger. He, you know, he, he looks much older. And I was like, well, I had the climate controlled lifestyle, right? I was <laughs> never raining inside and the temperature was always perfect. You know, he's out there racing in the snow. Right. And I think part of that, you know, is, is something, you know, you see other people, you know, have bad days as an athlete or have good days or, you know, nobody wants to go out when it's fleeting and it's, you know, 30, 40 degrees out. Yeah. But you see that got in the termination. It was, it was probably a really good example, you know, and I, I think that's, we were brought up that way. And then, 
you know, that's one of the reasons George became, you know, a, a cycling, a cycling star yeah. of that hard work. And so to me, it's just like, you know, yes, you're going to have adversity and you're going to have things that let you down during the day or, you know, some, something goes wrong or shipment doesn't get there, but you just, you know, you figure out how to fix it or how maybe it doesn't happen the next time. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really just fascinating way to view life. And I hope that people who are listening can kind of take that and embed that in their own mentality. And I think cycling is a great example of just grit and determination. It's not uh, a sport that I'm participating in constantly, but it is something that I just have so much admiration for from the outside because it is, it is a dedicated, dedicated endeavor. Yeah, it is for sure. So, and then, and then we started the, the events company, um, you know, that, that, um, the events company, which is a growing company, will have five large, uh, cycling events next year. Um, uh, that also basically started without, I mean, you know, it's always kind of like a, a disaster, but it started with no <laughs> real plan. It started, it started in, you know, aside from the Michelin classic that I did, you know, when I told you that earlier, the bike races I put on in Greenville in late 1990s and early 2000s, mm-hmm. that was just kind of a fun thing. And then I, I paused for a few years to think happy sports world was growing. Um, and then I decided to do a retirement ride for George in 2012. Um, and so I said, you know, I want to do a cycling celebration in George's career. Uh, back then we had purchased a boutique hotel north of town. So we, we based it out of the hotel mm-hmm. and it was just going to be a one year celebration of, uh, my brother's career. And, um, I started, I started late in the game. I started like, uh, end of August to plan it. Um, and the, the ride was October 21st or so, mm-hmm. but about 1100 people showed up, oh my um, gosh. It was super successful. <laughs> it was the first year event with very little marketing. Um, wow. and, and when you do these events, the hardest year is always the first year because you have to have established relationships, with the communities, the police, the EMS, the road closures, the whole thing. Right. And so come the next year, I was like, well, I mean, might as well just keep it going because everything is basically done. I mean, we had volunteers, yeah. we had, we kind of had the start of a template. Um, and so we, we continued and, uh, we'll, we'll probably be at 3000 riders this year and, and next year we'll have five of these. So we have Chattanooga, where, where you're from. Um, we have Bangor, Maine, uh, which is August 6th this year. It's coming up in mm-hmm. a couple of weeks. We had Lehigh Valley and we're adding Merced, California next year. So we'll have five of them. And wow. really, you know, it turned in, it turned into like a celebration ride, uh, for the retirement of my brother. But what, what's morphed into what, what I'm really passionate about is it's, it's a, it's a inclusive, cycling event that brings new people to the sport without them being intimidated. Right. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. it's the same format as a marathon, right? You could line up with the fastest Kenyans in the world, mm-hmm. right? You can, you can line up with the world champion. You can line up with the Olympic champion. You might come in two hours behind, yep. but it's the, it's the same start and it's the same finish line for everyone. And it's the mm-hmm. same celebration, whether you get third or whether you get 3000, 450 right it's the same you feel like you're doing a big event and you feel like you are in the sort of match and i love that that, and that for me has been the biggest mission because if if people could finish a cycling event and they're happy and their family's happy then then more people will get into the sport and and it's and it's good for everyone and so 
Um, we try to make it a real experience for not only the rider, but also the family member waiting on the side of the road. We have a free family festival, which is free food, free drinks. We have kids jumping castles. We have bands playing. We have big screen TV showing the event live, all for free. Yeah, because if you're, that's if your wife and your kids are having a good time while they're waiting for you for four hours on the side of the road, then you're going to come back next year. Yeah. And you're going to, you're going to see the sport of cycling in a bigger light than if you're sitting in a field in the middle of nowhere in Georgia with um, you know, no food and no drink and, and it's 95 degrees out. Not a great experience. Yeah, exactly. I'm so interested by that too, because cycling is historically not a sport that's easy to get into. Um, it, it feels maybe difficult to get into from the outside. And like, um, if you're new to it, maybe you could be an annoyance to people who are more experienced, but it sounds like you really intentionally set up a different experience with your races. And can you talk more about, was that intentional right from the start? Was that something you knew or was this something that you sort of stumbled onto along the way? No, it was intentional. Cycling is really a difficult sport to get into. You, you nailed it. If you go to a bike shop, you know, you don't know if you should spend a thousand dollars on a pair of bike uh, on a bike or twelve thousand dollars. Right, right. You don't know if you should spend a hundred dollars on a pair of shoes or five hundred dollars. Yep. That's Let's so say true. you get past that barrier and you get whatever you need, or you think you get whatever you need. Then you show up on a group ride and you don't know anyone. Mm-hmm. Generally, they're not very inclusive, right? Right. Because right. they're focused on their ride, they don't know you. You're a beginner. There's mm-hmm. not many people teaching you how to ride. You just kind of have to figure it out on your own, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, the re- part of the reason we started the Fondos and the hotel is to make it inclusive for everyone. Yeah. You can come to our hotel and rent the bike and somebody will go out and ride with you and teach you how to put your helmet on, teach you how to clip in and make oh, you that's feel so welcome. interesting. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize because that. It's really, it's a really tough sport to get into. You have to have, you most people won't get into it by themselves unless they have a friend that kind of guides them along. It's intimidating. You know, how do you clip yeah. in? How do, what do I put my tires up to? What, you know, do I stop at this turn or, you know, there's so much to learn that, you know, our mission is let's get more people on bikes. Yeah. And do you feel like the, these events and the hotel has that, do you feel like it's making that difference in the industry? I think so. Yeah. I see quite a number of people that have never would have thought about riding a bike. We have a ton of friends here in Greenville mm-hmm. that would have never ridden a bike ever if it wasn't for the Grand Fundo. Oh, and they train for awesome. it. And it could be their first ride. <clears throat> Great. Yeah. Yeah. That is so cool. So you've got the events, you've got the hotel. Um, there's also, uh, it, do you, you have a restaurant as well, right? Yeah. It's part of the hotel. Okay. Part of the hotel. Yeah. Yeah. So how, as you're developing all these different things, you're getting into, um, hotel management, you're getting into restaurant management. Was it the same experience with all of these things where it was really just sort of, I don't want to say learn as you go, but kind of just get into it, see what happens, get some feedback and continue to improve or, uh, were there elements of that as you got further into the journey that were more maybe planned? Like, what was that experience like? Yeah, with the hotel and restaurant, I mean, that's another thing. We jumped into not knowing anything about the hospitality industry. Mm-hmm. It, was, um, it was a good opportunity real estate-wise. Um, but you jump into it, you hire the right people. I had a um, great person working with me who's still working with me at the hotel. And 
um, you know, you just, you get passionate about something, about building something and, and you learn as you go. You know, now we have the, the, the people and the management and sort of the structure in place for it to work, you know. Um, I'm not as involved day to day, but, you know, like we're going through an expansion now, so I'll, I'll be more involved. But yeah, at first it was, it was scary because it's, it's, um, it's a small boutique hotel. And so it's really difficult for that to work. We fortunately made it work because we have a unique spin to it, which is the cycling component um, and the events. But that's a difficult, difficult thing to, uh, you know, a, a 12 or 13 room hotel is really not an easy task, especially when, when you have a restaurant associated mm-hmm. uh, with it. Fortunately, mm-hmm. we're in a good position and we're doing great. But that's it awesome. took years of, you know, hard work and worry and, you know, trying to fight it out. But yeah, now we're in a, in a good spot and we're excited about growing it and making it bigger. And, you know, and I think with, I think the common thread with, with all of these companies is, is really kind of, and this is what my brother George was an expert at. And this is, you know, he, yes, he was a cyclist and he raced his bike, but his, his main quality and main asset was building the right team and getting the most out of that team more than anyone else hmm. making that team a family right yep. and i think that's if, if there's one thing that i think i do and basically taking it from my brother's playbook is is really trying to form teams that really kind of work together well are motivated to work together and, and when there's a kick in that in that chain it, it, it doesn't work right you have to mm-hmm. have the right people so some of it is luck and some of it is how you treat your people um you know Treating uh, or showing different examples, um, yeah, and and really making everybody a family because it makes my job easier, right? If I want to go up there, and, yeah, and I like everybody um, that's working up there, and I like to hang out with them, and a lot of them ride bikes now, yeah, it just makes my job easy because you can just you know hang out and have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, and if only more leaders today, I think, had that attitude, the workplace would look a lot different than it does because I think viewing people as, as human first and you mm-hmm. know, employees kind of secondarily to that, I think is it, it's a very different way to sort of live in the workplace and to, and to lead. Right. And it sounds like that's something that you've placed a really high priority on and people always it's, follow it's that. Super, super important. Like a, a small example, like, and, and you know what, what the restaurant industry after COVID was going through, right? Oh Nobody yeah. To work. It's really hard to get employees. Restaurants are shutting down. Mm-hmm. And so it, it started out there, it started becoming sort of like a pricing war. Like this person's getting $2 an hour more here, and then this one's going to offer more here. Well, that's not really sustainable, right? Yeah. And so what, what I decided to do um, last year was um, take my executive staff, which is like eight or nine people, mm-hmm. and I took them to Columbia, South America, and I took them on a trip and showed them the country, showed them a new culture, wow. showed them where we're from. And... I, 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 bought, I, I provided them with an experience which will be remembered forever rather than yeah. $3 an hour more, you know? Yeah. And so, and, I'll, and I'll continue to do that because it brings the team together. You get to see people sort of up in a new light outside of work mm-hmm. um, and it forms stronger bonds in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Is, is there something that stands out in your mind over the past a little over 20 years that, that you've been really 
building the Hincapie brand, is there something that stands out as, as a moment you're really proud of? I think, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of them, you know, probably seeing, just seeing the companies grow and seeing sort of the motivation that my people have towards those companies and the passion that they have. Yeah. For me, that's the most important. It's not about, it's not so much about profit or, you know, it's not, I mean, as long as it's successful and, and, and my people are happy, I, I think, you know, that, that makes me proud. I mean, I'm proud every day when I go to the hotel and something mm-hmm. flew in from Spokane, Washington to, to come just see the hotel and ride bikes for five days. And that happens all the time. But, wow. You know, things like that, you know, you sit back and you're like, first, how did you find out about us? And, and then, you know, when they go out for a bike ride and, and maybe they have never ridden before and they come back and it's, they just, you just see this just glow in their face and are excited that that kind of makes it all worth it. Yeah, absolutely. The next question I have is really closely tied to that, but what do you see as the impact that you want to have on the cycling community or the world at large? I really think just getting more people on bikes. Um, Yeah. I think it's important. I think what we do is not only get people on bikes, but I think, you know, cycling is a dangerous sport with cars and, you know, yeah. the bike never wins if it's car versus yep. bike. Yep. But if, but if, if, if we make the sport kind of cool enough and out there enough uh, where people hear about it enough, just maybe that person in the car might give you an extra foot, right? Um, yeah. If, if your cousin did a King Cafe Grand Fondo in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, and you've never ridden a bike before, and your cousin told you how great it was, how much great experience he had. Mm-hmm. Maybe this guy gives you an extra two feet when he passes you on the road, right? Yeah. Because there's some sort of distant connection there. Yep. And I think, you know, you're not going to change the world in one day, but I think little chunks at a time and giving people the right experience um, surrounding the bicycle, um, to me, I think it's, it's well worth it. If, if, if it becomes a little bit safer or you get more kids on bikes, that eventually will be healthier because they're passionate about riding their bikes. And it's a lifelong sport. You know, my dad's 79 years old. He still rides every day. Mm. It's, yeah. it's something that stays with you um, for a long time. So if we can open those doors and eliminate those barriers to get into the sport, then then to me, that's, that's sort of the mission. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what would you say to someone who is maybe – still trying to find their path. They've got maybe something that they're, they're passionate about. Maybe they don't even know what they're passionate about yet, but they do want to, they want to do something bigger in their life. Do you have any advice for that person? Uh, it, 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 it always requires some sort of leap of faith or some sort of risk, right? I yeah. think if you look at, so going back to my story about the MBA students that came to my office, Mm-hmm. If you look at every single detail and everything that you've ever been told and everything that can go wrong, then you probably never do it. All right. Yeah. I've, I've always every every business every business that and it even happened to me when 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 people are trying to start a business and you and you ask somebody for advice, mm-hmm. more often than not, that person's going to say, hmm, "That's a tough business." Yep. That's, that's a tough one, right? Well, yep. they, all, they all should be tough. Yep. It shouldn't be an easy business. Right. And so. You can look at all, and I'm not, you know, yes, you need education and you need examples and you need all that, but you can't look at that sort of with that textbook mind, right? You've got to kind of open up and, and look at 
other things that you can uh, you can create or you can have um, you know you can have impact over. Um, so there's always going to be someone telling you you can't do it. There's always going to be a negative to you know that's going to be a lot of work or it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, but I mean, I think it happens with everyone. I listen to um, uh, the Guy Raz podcast, How I Built This, all the time. Yeah, yeah, it's and, great. And everybody's journey is about everybody's journey is about the same, right? Mm-hmm. They, you know, maybe some of them had a plan, but you know, they all have cash flow issues at the start, and they all have struggles, and they don't sleep, and they have problems with whatever they're making or whatever they're trying to develop. It's yep. always you, you just have to push through it because I, I've never, I've never listened to one of his podcasts that the person said, I got into this business and it was super easy and <laughs> cash flow was incredible from the day one <laughs> and manufacturing was perfect and I could just, it was great. I've never heard one of those. Yeah. I'm, I'm still looking for one, but I haven't heard one yet. Yeah. I, and I think that's great advice. I think that's great advice is you got to be gritty and you got to, you got to stick with it through those, early stages especially. And I think you're a great example of that. So Rich, thank you so much for sharing that advice, for coming on our podcast today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. And there it is. Rich Hincapie, everyone. Thanks to Rich for being on the show. Man, I left inspired by his grit and his tenacity in building the Hincapi sportswear brand first and then all of the subsequent brands uh, that he has built with his brother George. What an inspiring story. I hope that it left you inspired as well. So you can find Rich and the Hincapi brands at Hincapi.com. That's H-I-N-C-A-P-I-E.com. And I will link to that in the show notes. Go there, sign up for a race. It's New Year's at the time that I'm recording this. And I think that's a great time to try something new, to challenge yourself in a new way. What better way than by signing up for one of the races? They're all the way from the East to the West Coast. There's five of them. I think it's a great idea for you to jump in and try something new. If the racing may not be your thing, you can also support Rich by checking out the hotel. It's called Hotel Domestique. It's near Greenville, South Carolina. And folks, I'm telling you, it is absolutely beautiful. It is one of a kind, and it's not just a hotel. You have the experience as well. Go there and take a guided tour. Maybe you're not super comfortable on a bike. This is the perfect way to get introduced. You can eat at their restaurant. It's called Restaurant 17. The food is phenomenal. You can follow them on Instagram at Hankappy Sports. Be sure to support Rich and thank him for his time on the podcast today. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave a review, smash that five-star button. It doesn't take very long, and it means a great deal and makes a great difference in other people's ability to find our show. So please take a few seconds after, if you enjoyed the episode, and leave a review or smash five stars. That would mean the world to us. If you have recommendations for someone to be on the show, you can email those to us at podcast at towercommunitybank.com. That's podcast at towercommunitybank.com. Check out Tower. We talked about that earlier. Go to towercommunitybank.com and be sure to check us out. Say thank you for starting and supporting this podcast. It would mean the world. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. And that is all that I have for today. So until the next episode, take care, be well, and that's a wrap. Bye. (laughs) 